Hey everybody, we're live. This is Mark Booth. I'm here with my co-host Jeff Barrett talking today about the experience business, what the future looks like, what companies are doing today to really make a big difference and an impact on their companies. Jeff, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well. I'm excited about this one too because the relationship between data and design I think is a really important relationship over the next 10 years, so I'm excited to chat about it. We are super happy to have our our guest today, Nan Nayak, who's the managing director and the lead of design strategy and innovation for Fjord, uh, which is Accenture Interactive's design consulting group. Uh, Nan, how are you doing? Great. Happy to be here. Nan, talk us through, uh, just as we kick off, kind of walk us through your role. What do you do? Who do you work with? Uh, What do you do for Fjord? I am uh, what's called a design strategy lead. Uh, What I take care of is making sure the design services that Fjord um, is presenting to clients is uh, cutting edge is looking at what's changing in the industry and making sure that we are preparing them uh, for the future of experiences. Uh, So in that role, I'm looking at what's evolving in the industry from a technology perspective. For example, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, chatbots, um, augmented reality. These are the realities of today. And we try to help clients uh, reimagine their uh, experiences with customers uh, and how to sort of take advantage of the technological and data advancements that are occurring. Hey, Nan, how do we create better relationships internally between data and design teams? Yeah, that's interesting, right? So um, we are all, including Accenture, sort of uh, organized in a somewhat siloed way. Uh, design people sit uh, in a design uh, practice and uh, analytics people sit in analytics practice. And I would say this is the same with uh, our clients as well. And up to this point, uh, typically there's not been much integration uh, on a daily basis between these two functions. Maybe occasionally they get together to do handoffs between the two groups. Uh, But as we enter an age where it's not just personalized marketing, but uh, customer experience services uh, across the board need to become much more contextualized and personalized, it's not enough to sort of uh, do a sort of design framework and then hand it off to some analytics person uh, to figure out the data side of it, right? Uh, There's so much data available, um, big data available, where there might be insights to inform people about what is the context, what is the opportunity. And to do that, we need data scientists and designers to work together. So for example, uh, in a discovery phase of design, uh, we need analytics uh, expertise to help us ask questions of the data that we are also asking questions of users. So um, that's one uh, connection, which is in terms of understanding the full context of the user. Second is really to figure out what data is missing. So sometimes you want to create next generation personalized experiences, but you don't have all the data you need, the signals you need. And to do that, you may have to lay down IoT or figure out partnerships uh, with other providers or other uh, companies who may have that data. So you need data science talent to work with designers to figure out what's the right strategy to collect data. And then, of course, um, you know you want to make sure that you're using the latest uh, technologies, you know, modeling or artificial intelligence. And then you need data scientists and designers to work together to figure out how to uh, seamlessly integrate these technologies into the experience. So these three areas, I've been calling them designing with data, designing for data, and in some ways, designing by data as part of the three uh, st- uh, legs of a stool uh, for the future of experiences. Man, that's super interesting to hear about the need for 
for designers even to be focused so much on data today. How do you think that's going in in the world today? Are, are, are a lot of designers jumping onto that? Are they jumping onto the idea of, I need to use data better or I need to integrate better with my data scientists? How, how is that working? Well, initially, it's a little bit of, um, uh, you know, sort of a little bit of uh, reluctance because uh, big data has, uh, you know, you need to have the mathematical capabilities to understand that data. And often it's even big data is somewhat incomplete, right? So designers tend to want to have direct access to uh, users and do ethnographic and qualitative and deep studies to understand the context of customers. Uh, but a lot of the insights they collect uh, are not validated or reliable in a broad sense, right? So uh, often you have to go to uh, digital analytics data or uh, even survey data to validate these uh, experiences. So um, I think that uh, designers initially were a bit reluctant, but uh, in at Accenture and with our clients, we're beginning to uh, have what we're calling data literacy for designers. And we're training designers to not be afraid of uh, quantitative data. Uh, we've given them problems to think about and how, if they had the data, what would they do with it? What concepts or new experiences they would create? And so we've, we've uh, begin to rescale um, designers uh, and help them understand how to talk to data scientists. So for example, the word model, you know, um, it's sometimes hard for designers to understand what these quantitative models do. But essentially models are answers to questions. Right? They're trying to answer a question by using a certain uh, you know, way of managing the data. So uh, by uh, disambiguating some of these words and helping designers and data scientists have uh, talk to each other, we're beginning to create this practice. Very interesting. So Nan, you were part of our think tank that we did out in Las Vegas earlier this year where we talked about uh, the future of experience businesses. Uh, as we talk about companies needing to become experience-driven. What does that mean to you? Well, I think um, earlier on when people thought about experience business, they thought it was just putting a, a light layer of contextual messaging around existing product, right? So when you did uh, marketing, you just took the same product, but you spun the value proposition slightly differently and offered it up to different target segments of customers. I think that's moved uh, forward from where you cannot really just take a, you know, a one size fits all and try to market it differently. You have to fundamentally understand first, you know, who are the different, um, you know, users, individuals who are beginning to access these services and how do you need to tweak the service to uh, fit in with their context. So the, it switched from becoming focused on product. You have to really focus on the life uh, style of customers at you know in life or at work and understand how the experience, you know product fits into their lives so that's a pivot in terms of having a human centric uh, approach uh, to the problem set and so if you're doing having an experience driven business you can never know everything about customers upfront right you they continue to change so uh, Fjord and Accenture talk about this notion called liquid expectations, which means that people's needs today are changing on a constant basis based on all the experiences that they're having. So, for example, you know, because I can get out of an uh, Uber without paying, you know, there's no payments interaction. Uh, you begin to ask yourself, why can't I have that when I walk into the uh, grocery store or somewhere else? So as expectations change, companies have to have the uh, the the 
culture to evolve their experiences uh, to changing expectations. So that requires not only design thinking, which means an iterative mindset and a learning mindset to the design process, but really begin to operate uh, sort of overall as a uh, in, in terms of a design culture. So we have these three things called design thinking, design doing, and design culture. These are the three tenets of what it means to become an experience-driven business. And fundamentally, you have to uh, figure out what you're really measuring in terms of uh, what what you are as an experience-driven business. Hey, Jeff, let's hand it over to you. Yeah, what are some of the other things that consumers are already or will start to expect? Yeah, so I think... Um, because we are in the, in the age where you know there's so much information and so much choice uh, consumers are overwhelmed you know and they don't have time to actually sort through all of the choices that they have so they will expect that information is curated for them uh, is uh, created in a way that it fits in, with with their lives and their intents and if it doesn't they move on so the attention span is getting much more narrow and therefore, uh, consumers are going to expect that uh, brands will begin to understand them better and provide them with services that almost um, anticipate their needs. So that expectation is difficult because their expectations are changing on a consistent basis. So for an experience-driven business, how do you keep your, uh, keep your uh, fingers on the pulse of the, your changing customer needs? I think that is going to be very important. Then the, the follow-up would be um, all this data now and, and how we humanize this data. Are there things that we couldn't do two years ago that we're now capable of doing that would open up this experience business? Yes, I, I think that, um, you know, up to this point, we did not have the compute power and the access to data like we have today, right, with cloud and other things. And I, I, I believe that... Um, uh, finally, you know, also, you know, artificial intelligence technology has reached a stage where you can use it in very scaled ways. So from that perspective, if you really think about a customer journey, you, you are able to now trap, you know, signals from the uh, in the customer journey to understand where people are having difficulty, uh, where what they're doing as frequent sort of mundane tasks that you can take over. So when you are able to map it and then be able to help with it. So, for example, uh, uh, Google now, for example, I'm able to know how long it takes for me to commute to San Francisco every day. I don't have to go to maps to find that out. It's almost like, you know, I get a, a prompt that tells me, hey, by the way, it's going to take you a little bit longer today. Hurry up. Right. So these types of anticipatory small uh, services actually help you live your life a little bit better. And so I think that um, it's important to uh, keep in mind that these are not, not maybe big changes, but it's the way you're living your life on a day-to-day -day basis that are changed by these small, what we in quotes call living services. Nan, talk to me a little bit about companies or industries that you think are doing an especially good job at becoming experience-driven. Well, I think um, the the travel industry has necessarily had to uh, make the shift because of the uh, disruption that has happened in this market. Um, if you think about the Airbnbs and the Ubers of the world, you know, fundamental tenets of um, how you um, 
stay when you travel or how you use, um, you know, um, mobility services, all that has changed. So I think travel is uh, looking at many innovative and new ways of trying to look more from a, a customer perspective on how they want to manage uh, journeys and uh, trips and so on. I think that's an industry uh, you, you should watch, uh, including uh, the hospitality industry in general. Um, I think retail um, is another, but I think there's uh, issues with, you know, um, retail, um, you know, sort of uh, in-store versus online and the integration between those. I think there's huge opportunity to connect the two together uh, by using data uh, between these two sort of almost separate channels. And it's stuff that, you know, Amazon is doing uh, with Whole Foods and all of that is going to be really interesting to watch uh, in terms of how you take a really high-end grocer and uh, a scaled, you know, uh, e-commerce play and figure out what those innovations are going to become to make our lives uh, easier on a day-to-day basis. We talked about artificial intelligence. You talked about IoT and things here at the beginning. Would love to better understand uh, how how far ahead are we are there are there a lot of companies that are using that today, or is it still very much the beginning? Um, I think that companies have recognized that um, their experienced design teams need to get a lot closer to their data science teams in order for innovation to work. Right. So we have clients who have put these two teams closer together or in the same organizational group, but I don't think it's quite clear um, yet how they work together. Right. And they understand that they should be using or exploring um, artificial intelligence technologies. Uh, they should be thinking about chatbots and how to use um, things like Alexa, um, you know, in terms of how they deliver experiences. But I think it's uh, somewhat early days in terms of, uh, you know, fully ha- having understood how to do this. Um, I think that uh, what will uh, happen is uh, design thinking as a method uh, is being sort of propagated to everyone that, you know, you cannot really do sequential, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, design. You have to continue to optimize and have a, a cross-functional team participate in that design. Those ideas are holding on, but I don't think that um, yet people have um, uh, feel like they're confident they know how to put data and design uh, together. But with artificial intelligence, that adds another layer, right? So uh, there is this whole notion of, well, how far can you go and what are the tasks that should be automated? Then what are the consequences of doing that, right? So if you automate a bunch of uh, experiences and there's no human role in that anymore, there are unintended consequences to people's jobs. Uh, and in also in terms of, well, who's watching the AI to make sure you know it's doing the right thing, for example. So I think these questions still need to be answered. So Nan, you bring up kind of the idea of the machine, and I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on, some people may be worried about, the machines are gonna take over my job, I'm not gonna have a profession anymore. Do we need to be worried about that? Um, I, I think that, um, you know, one, I, I don't think we should be worried about that, but I think we should prepare for it, right? Uh, I think machines can do a lot of things that humans are not good at and also, uh, you know, make errors with, or just it's just so tedious and not uh, pleasant to do, right? For example, uh, going to look for mines, right, in a minefield, right? A machine can do that, um, you know, and a human shouldn't do that. You know, some of these more danger-oriented jobs. 
Um, but there are other, others where uh, humans are error prone. Um, and so, you know, machines would do a much better job of doing that. I think it's a balance. So if you understand and map out um, in a, a customer journey or a, a day in the life, what uh, tasks are, are easier done by machines that would be helpful to humans. I think those are the great places to apply technology. Um, on the other hand, you know, if there are, uh, you know, sort of factories that uh, robots are taking over, I think it is um, uh, required that the consequences of that, how do you reskill uh, re people or move them into other types of jobs and do that as part of the project of uh, inserting the AI, I think those are the things that society has to think about uh, handling. Nan, will there need to be new roles in companies that are hybrid data and design? And so what these roles look like, what is the ideal talent set then for this next generation? That's a great question. Um, I think uh, design thinking as a, you know, as a philosophy, as a, as a, a, a structure is taking on uh, across the board, right? So people are understanding that you don't, you know, sort of do a functional design and then you do de development. The iterative nature of, you know, uh, trial and error uh, and, uh, you know, doing that in a cross-functional way, learning from that experience is taking hold. So I think design thinking will become sort of everybody's sort of baseline skill set. Um, on the other hand, you know, the specialization with AI, the specialization with design will continue to remain. However, um, designers will have to, you know, understand a bit of how technology works, you know, um, how data models work so that they can um, insert uh, these capabilities thoughtfully into the design uh, that they are uh, rendering for, uh, for clients. Uh, data scientists, on the other hand, cannot um, say that they are privy to the truth about, you know, anything, you know, because they may have a version of the truth in the quantitative data, but often, you know, if you, the you know, the data that's used is always backward looking. So let me give you an example. So if you look for who would be great technology computer science people uh, looking at the data in the past, you might imagine that they tend to come from these universities, you know, they have these kind of skills, but you may also come to the realization that they are, they must be a man, right? Because in the past, mostly men have uh, in, been in these professions. But then looking forward, if you look at the context, you may see that you really need to not come to that conclusion. You have to think about how more women need to be in that mix, right? So uh, a combination of, um, you know, uh, modeling to figure out what has worked in the past with what is the current context has to be combined. And that uh, is uh, required in order for these things uh, to work out correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Facebook's doing a lot of stuff in, in Detroit with teaching, uh, you know, young kids how to start working in these spaces. Um, you know, does this space need to be a, require four, six-year degrees or um, is this skill set kind of inherent sometimes and just needs to be um, pulled out? Um, you're talking about design specifically? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, design, of course, there is a, a artistic side and a creative side to that talent. But I believe that uh, innovation is everybody's job, right? It's not just the designer's job. I, it depends on what perspective you bring to the problem. And the methods that design thinking provides is practicable uh, or put, uh, people can participate in that. But it takes, um, you know, some level of schooling in how to think about the design process itself. Uh, clearly, you know, you need training in computer science or data science in order to, um, you know, become, um, you know, proficient in that area. But I believe that you need uh, uh, 
education to become more multidisciplinary. So a designer cannot just take art classes and so on. I think it's required for them to understand the basics of data, uh, understand technology in a way that they know how to appropriately insert it into the design process. So Nan, we've talked quite a bit about data and design today. Uh, I, I really would love to know for the next and, and an upcoming generation who's going to be joining the workforce, does everybody need to be comfortable with data today? Uh, I would say yes. Um, I think um, computer science or understanding a little bit of programming is sort of becoming like, um, you know, understanding mathematics, uh, um, you know, language, um, history, and so on, right? It's, it's a basic skill. Um, so I think manipulating data or understanding data sets, um, having a little bit of mathematics in your foundation, I think is a requirement uh, going forward from an education perspective so that you're not sort of feeling afraid of the data, right, afraid to manipulate data. And, and technologies are going to come in that make it much easier to manipulate data, right? You don't have to learn SQL in order to uh, manipulate data. You can um, actually put in, you know, a natural language query and almost interview the data and say, you know, can, can you tell me this? And the data set may come back and show you, um, you know, a, a story about what's, uh, what insights are hidden in the data. So I think, yes, I would suggest that data is an essential uh, element of a designer's um, uh, training. Nan, as a follow-up, uh, you talked earlier about everybody needs to be innovating. Uh, you know, that's one of your kind of your remits at Fjord is, is leading innovation. How do you teach that? How do you teach innovation? Yeah, so we have um, created sort of um, uh, through a service design process, uh, through the design thinking, design doing, uh, design culture sort of tenets that we have uh, inside Fjord, uh, we expose people and actually help them practice uh, innovation. Right. So in our uh, in our projects, in our typical service design projects, it's a very co-creation, collaborative session through which people uh, understand that we don't have all the answers. We we create the answers together with people. Right. So often it's practicing design thinking. Uh, that's why we call it design doing um, in, in a way that allows you to um, understand that you may have the answers already. We just use the process to pull it out. So. Um, when, when we talk about innovation, it's really about everybody understanding the problem set in a very consistent way. What are we all trying to do together? And then say, well, what are the steps to take? What would the customer need? And, and by taking that customer-centric perspective and really getting into the heads of the individual customer who's going to touch the service, I think sometimes you find that um, the innovative idea doesn't have to come from the designer. It often comes from field workers or somebody in a process role in the middle who really has um, sort of that pulse on what actually is happening inside an experience. So I, I do believe that um, by practicing uh, the design thinking methodology with a cross-functional team and doing co-creation and even getting non-designers to do sketching, for example, that you sometimes pull out the best ideas. Now, how do you prepare for future innovation, the anticipation of what comes and is available in the next five to 10 years? So innovation is, um, you know, sort of an ongoing process, right? It's an ongoing optimization process. And I think that's what is uh, the biggest challenge for, uh, for brands is how do, you, how do you continue to optimize? So often uh, there are uh, 
you know, processes inside a large enterprise that is optimizing cost, you know, efficiency, you know, changing process and, you know, manufacturing processes or things like that. But they don't think about experience being one of those processes that they're continuously optimizing and innovating on. Of course, the first uh, step towards that is measurement. Right. So how are you benchmarking uh, your experiences, whether they're working or not working and who they're working for and who they're not working for? And then also, how are you keeping up with benchmarking yourself against not only your direct competitors in the spaces you're in, but with leaders in the industry, experienced leaders in the industry? So the how the Uber effect, right? How is payments changing that I have to uh, keep up with so that my payments experience is keeping up with the latest? So I think uh, I would say that, you know, taking a very customer journey, customer experience centric approach, uh, making sure that you're not just looking at function feature comparisons, but really looking at uh, how the experience or the service works in totality at key moments that matter, that is really critical, and, and, and continuing to uh, benchmark yourself not against just you know, immediate competitors, but against the industry, will actually help you get a sense for where the investments need to occur across a journey. So we have created, you know, I've uh, been uh, one of the people creating um, a tool that I call the Love Index, which is really saying, are you creating memorable, lovable experiences at the moments that matter? And if you're not, why are you not? What is the expectation you're missing? And who is doing that better than you, even if it's not in your industry? If you keep up with that type of view of the world, I think innovation becomes a natural part of the culture of the company. Man, I love that idea of the love index. It, w talk me through a little bit. When did that start? Are there customers of yours or companies out there that you think are are scoring particularly high in the love index? Yes, you know. So uh, in 2016, you know, I've, I've backing up. I've uh, worked on this tool with some uh, very smart colleagues of mine, where we were uh, looking at current measures of experience, and we found that uh, things like the Net Promoter Score or customer satisfaction tend to be uh, almost after the fact or lagging measures. And they're not uh, sufficiently diagnostic to say, well, where is the opportunity to make improvement? So uh, because we're an experience organization, we said, well, we have to really be measuring particular moments that matter. And because these moments not, does, do not have you know, just enough for them to be functional, they have to have an affinity component. I have to remember them as something that I would like to repeat, Right. So um, there's lots of behavioral economics research nowadays to say that it is the remembering brain that is actually driving your decisions, right? What you recall about that experience is what you tell other people about that experience. So for that to work, uh, work well, we created this tool and we identified through multiple uh, streams of research five factors, which we call the fresh factors, fun, relevant, engaging, social, and helpful. Uh, these are the five dimensions that matter even in a person to person relationship that we believe brands need to pay attention to in, in sort of service experiences. Uh, we have uh, we ran a study in three markets across uh, four different vertical segments last year. And, uh, you know, interesting to note that most of the digital companies that we recognize, like Google and Amazon and Apple and uh, Netflix, came out way ahead. And the most loved brand in the world uh, across these three markets was surprisingly, and maybe not so surprisingly, Netflix, um, you know, because they have uh, uh, reinvented entertainment 
They give you access um, to uh, lots of uh, content. And they're also uh, anticipating and teaching you about what you need to watch and so on. So across the board, you know, that experience is something that is evolving on a regular basis. They've used AI technologies. So uh, companies like that, are, of course, as you know, uh, ones to watch. And of course, think Amazon for its uh, focus on relevance and being helpful uh, also came out way ahead. And there were other leaders in sub-segments um, that uh, there's a study that we have published that's available on SlideShare that uh, you can look at. That's awesome. Nan, so in closing for me, I, I, I love this idea of the fresh values, being fun, relevant, engaging, social, and helpful. Um, is, it, is it your idea that any company today, whether you are a retailer, a financial services company, a healthcare provider, on and on and on, everyone should be looking at those fresh values to figure out what are the moments that matter most for your consumers? That's right. Um, we we often we have now begun to work with uh, many of our customers to, um, you know, we already do the mapping of the journey, but we uh, we are looking at benchmarking the emotional affinity of each mo- each of the significant moments along these fresh dimensions that allows them to see how well they're doing against their comp- competition and against experienced leaders, but also able to focus on the dimensions that they're not doing as well on or think about what it would take to do better on that dimension because that could be a differentiation strategy. And if you really look at the disruptors in the market, you know, in financial services, those are the ones that have identified painful moments and begun to take the pain out of it by focusing on the fresh dimension. So this is what is interesting is like if you put disruptors into the benchmark, you find that they do well on these dimensions, which means that they've taken a pain point and created a business out of it. Nan, how refreshing. Everybody, you heard it right here. Uh, Interesting to hear Nan talk about uh, the need to measure the moments that matter. Um, You know, the the standard that she came up with with her friends at Fjord, uh, the fresh value, making sure that anything you're creating is fun, relevant, engaging, social, and helpful. The idea of let's identify painful moments and let's make them better. Uh, Nan, it's a pleasure to have you on here. Any closing thoughts? No, I think that we are in a in a, a great a pivoting moment of opportunity. I finally, I started my career over 25 years ago in this area. And I think finally, we are at a stage where the human centricity is becoming primary in experiences. And it's going to be an exciting time to see all the innovations that occur. Nan, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today. We'll talk to everybody soon. See ya.